Hi, everyone. It's Bhaskar Sankara, the editor of Jacobin. This is a really difficult message to record. As I'm sure a lot of you have heard, this podcast, this episode of Weekends, was one of Michael's last broadcasts. He passed away unexpectedly from a blood clot on Monday. And we're just sitting here thinking about his life and thinking about how to carry on without him. Uh, the Jacobin YouTube channel that we launched earlier this year was Michael's dream. Uh, he envisioned the finished product of the channel being two live shows as well as frequent explainers and enough clips to keep the channel going. So far, we've only launched Weekends, a project he was really excited with because he really loved working with, with Anna. And we were waiting uh, a bit to launch that second live show. That one was also going to be hosted by Michael with other Jackman contributors as, as guests. And his plan was to run it for about a year and a half and eventually train his successor so he could see the, the channel going, see the institution being built, and, and probably focus on his other work, his writing, his work with the MBS, and so on. You know, I don't know what form it'll take, but I know we'll continue on with the, the videos in some form. We'll never forget our friend and, and his contributions. You know, the last exchange I had with, with Michael was actually about this episode of Weekends. He thought it went well, uh, especially the interview with Vivek Chipper, a favorite of his. Uh, I told him this was actually the first one that I've missed since I was driving all day on, on Saturday, but that I, uh, we should chat later. Uh, obviously, I never got that chance. Uh, and I still can't bring myself, to be honest, to, to listen, much less watch this episode. But I really hope you do, uh, because Michael put so much effort and so much love into what he was putting out. Um, Michael Brooks was someone who believed in the socialist politics of building a world without exploitation and oppression. And he also believed most fundamentally in being kind to other human beings. And he also fucking hated Dave Rubin. Thanks for listening, and this is Weekends. Welcome to Weekends with myself, Michael Brooks, and Anna Kasparian. Michael, we missed you. <laughs> we missed, I missed you last you week. guys. We had Nando on. That was good. Nando crushed it, as you do. And of course, you did, yep. as always. Well, I, I missed you guys, and I missed Kale. I did not miss not working for a week. Um. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I, I just had um, the week off of TYT, and it was nice. It was nice. I mean, you can't really do much because of uh, the pandemic. But we drove over to uh, Santa Barbara. It's about an hour and a half north of where we're at. And it was just beautiful. That's you know, awesome. just took long walks by the beach, enjoyed nature, just completely unplugged. Yeah, we got out to the beach, too. I'm I'm definitely like I've been I, I'll I'll do a plug here. Watch the log off video with Ben Fong and Amber Lee Frost and Matt Chrisman. That's just excellent. Like, that's a great all the Jackman teaching series are great. And that one, they just nailed every aspect of it. And so, you know, a conclusion for me, like I would recommend and push for everybody to spend way less time on social media anyways. And I mean, I'm starting to implement that and it's, uh, it's helping a bit, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of other stuff going on and obviously it's like an extremely stressful time, but that's, that's like a small thing you can do and it makes a big difference. 
So this this definitely plays into a theme for today's show that I'm definitely noticing. And it's just this, you know, so-called online activism and how online really doesn't depict reality in a lot of ways, right? And so um, in a recent episode of your show, you said something that really resonated, which was TMBS, of course. You said, you know, take no easy victories. Right. Um, and it's totally true. I think people, and Matt Crisman talks about this a lot, um, mistake the hashtag activism for real activism that actually changes things systemically. And we'll talk about that throughout the show. It's really a common theme today. Totally. And just also the complete, like the flip, it's like be ruthless on institutions and forgiving and kind of individuals, right? Like that kind of, cause the flip is the opposite, you know, mostly online. It's all. And yeah, I mean, I was reading a uh, Cabral who was this incredible Cape Verdean revolutionary and theorist and just, led these I mean these liberation struggles that not only liberated like Cape Verde but actually influenced uh the Portuguese movement against the Portuguese dictatorship that he was fighting to get rid of Portuguese imperial colonial occupation and I just love yeah I mean that's one of his big phrases claim no easy victories and that just seems like exactly among a couple of others the message for the moment but yeah I mean this is uh this is a you know, we're in like a pandemic depression. Obviously, you know, there's aspects like with some of the uprisings going on and people out in the streets that, you know, parts of that are obviously really, really inspiring and important and positive. Um, but of course, even that, like, thank God people are, are action in action. But of course, that goes to other things that are horrific, you know, of like the brutal, grotesque racism of this country and police violence and capitalism and geographics. I mean, it's, it's all, it's all coming and we need to, you know, we need to come together and, and figure it out. Uh, because yeah. And, and I think the way Chrisman talks about the online stuff is kind of like the gamification of it is really perfect. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, and it's just incredible because it's like the stakes are actually high. You know, we'll talk, I mean, we're going to do longer segments on it uh, in terms of the federal authorities in Portland. I mean, today it's going to be attached to making fun of the beanie guy. But, you know, that's like a really (laughs) serious issue. Um, So, you know, there's just a lot cooking, but I just, as always, I mean, I don't know, you know, whatever you can do, I think logging off is a great step. I think if things like, you know, meditation appeal to you, it's a little bit towards addressing some of just the like alienation and all of the kind of mental health stuff that's going on, which we're all, you know, dealing with in different ways. Also, uh, rewatch Super Troopers. That movie's so stupid. I love it. (laughs) We all we all need it. We all need something stupid to like, you know, so log stupid. off and and tune in to something dumb yeah. and just like let your brain rest. Because I think yes. everyone is, um, you know, just overthinking. We're in overdrive and overthinking in all the negative ways, honestly. Right. And so you see people lashing out and you see solidarity breaking down. And I think it definitely would be beneficial to listen to that log off message because Twitter is not real life. It's just not. Might give you that temporary uh, dopamine rush. You might feel really good if something that you uh, tweeted out was snarky and maybe even went viral and led to 
the latest uh, day long hashtag movement, but it's not doing anything. I mean, in it, fact, you know, it's it's horrible. Like wedges. it is doing like it's bad for people's like well being, but it's doing very little in terms of like accomplishing anything with politics. I, I mean, I totally agree. Right. I'll also be. I'm really on the. I'm really on the hippie tip. I also will say, listen to the Ram Dass podcast. That is that is like the antithesis of Twitter mind. Uh, we have to come up with a name. We will at some point. Other shows have like catchy names that like it's the commentary segment, but they name it something mm-hmm. else that makes it sound better. We still have not done that, but our commentaries are good. So, you know, but we have to fi- we do have to figure out the branding of these segments, which is my awkward way of saying it's time for our commentaries this week. And I'm going to start by talking about the state of the presidential race with regards to foreign policy. Now, it's important to remember that Donald Trump definitely, when he was first running for president, has occasionally discoursed uh, criticisms of U.S. empire, overreach. He claimed falsely that he had posed the invasion of Iraq from the beginning. Uh, an old interview with Howard Stern sort of showed that to not be the case. Um, somewhere between disinterest and support as he sort of like, you know, narcissistically bloviated on. In the main, his foreign policy has been brutal, vicious, and even though it's sort of countered some traditional U.S. rhetorical stances, both the aggressive, I mean, you know, the idea that George W. Bush's vicious empire building and invasions in Afghanistan and Iraq would have anything to do with human rights. But nonetheless, they deployed uh, rhetoric of humanitarianism. Uh, Clinton and Obama, both in very different ways, were confident of the U.S. so-called rules-based order. Uh, Trump has bucked against all of these things rhetorically and, you know, on one area, to his credit, has negotiated a deal with the Taliban uh, we need to get out of Afghanistan after 20 years uh, of just absolute catastrophe and failure and civilian death and soldier and, and death of, of soldiers uh, from the United States and our allies. And of course, the usual bipartisan blob has moved against Trump but bes- with regards to Afghanistan. But besides that, Trump has represented not an evolution, but a regression. He has been relentless in attempting coup in Venezuela. He has accelerated the U.S. hegemonic and anti-people attitude aggressively in Latin America and the Caribbean. He's, of course, been racist, disdainful, and disinterested in Africa, but actually accelerated uh, things like AFRICOM, drone strikes, um, and other new reaches of the U.S. empire on the continent. And he's also accelerated the drone war. The drone war was a big problem with George W. Bush. Of course, it was expanded and codified under President Obama. And there was a huge amount of correct criticism because the drone war was not transparent. It was killing civilians. It wasn't strategic. It wasn't going through uh, any kind of seriously transparent channels. Well, of course, Trump has made it even worse. Let's go to a couple of these quotes here from Foreign Policy Magazine. This is just a a piece that came out a couple of months ago. 
On March 10th, a U.S. drone fired a missile turning a passenger vehicle out of Jalal, Somalia, into a heap of burnt and broken metal with fresh corpses inside. Whether the people that day were killed with terrorists or ordinary Somalis is actively disputed. It's also a reminder that the United States targeted killing program persists to this day, another legacy of the forever war that has now lasted three presidential administrations and shows no sign of stopping in the next one. Under U.S. President Donald Trump, however, an already opaque and murderous set of rules has become even more widely applied and even less accountable. This is Kelsey Atherton writing in Foreign Policy, May 22nd, 2020. Let's go to the next graph. The elastic nature of the September 2001 authorization for military force, AUMF, has stretched as far as to cover strikes in Yemen, Libya, Somalia. The first modern drone strike, a Hellfire missile fired from a CIA-piloted Predator drone in October 2001, was covered by the AUMF, as was the airstrike in Janal, conducted by U.S. Africa Command, AFRICOM, itself born in the dying years of George W. Bush's administration as part of the quote-unquote war on terror. So again, this is no pullback of U.S. empire. This is actually a raw expression of empire and in many ways simply a deepening continuity. There's even parallels. Obama had some very great and, of course, infinitely more sophisticated critiques rhetorically of George W. Bush administration, most primarily the invasion of Iraq, but also the idea of not negotiating with so-called enemy foreign leaders. Trump actually echoed Obama in his dumb, incoherent way, uh, and both, of course, uh, commitments to engage in torture and kill civilians. So there is actually a certain parallel there, although, of course, Trump's call to stop forever wars was a helpful factor in his election. And of course, he was uh, correct. He has not done that in any systemic way at all. And civilian casualties, drone strikes, and illegality are skyrocketing. He also tore up the Iran deal. Iran deal was an enormous accomplishment that made the world a radically better place. Now, it could have been implemented earlier. President Lula and others actually conducted a very similar deal in the beginning of the Obama administration, which the Obama administration rejected, even though they would go on to sign a similar deal several years later themselves. That being said, the agreement was working. All party, the Iranians were following it to the T, and Trump ripping it apart has been a grotesque disaster. There was also, and we've already forgotten this in this accelerated timeline, Uh, the assassination of General Soleimani in Iraq in the winter. Here's Donald Trump announcing that assassination. As president, my highest and most solemn duty is the defense of our nation and its citizens. Last night at my direction, the United States military successfully executed a flawless precision strike that killed the number one terrorist anywhere in the world, Qasem Soleimani. Soleimani was plotting imminent and sinister attacks on American diplomats and military personnel, but we caught him in the act and terminated him. Under my leadership, America's policy is unambiguous to terrorists who harm or intend to harm any American. We will find you. We will eliminate you. We will always protect our diplomats, service members, all Americans, and our allies. 
So, of course, that was a reckless act and public murder. Trump, of course, also has pulled out of things like the Paris Agreement uh, and uh, been absolutely any any tiny vestiges of any type of even modest U.S. objection to ongoing Israeli apartheid policies. Of course, Trump has embraced, um, including moving the capital to Jerusalem. And with China, uh, he has oscillated between a sort of personal fixation with President Xi and also pushing for a new Cold War, which, as we'll get to in a second, is very much on the agenda in a bipartisan military-industrial complex-fueled basis on both sides of the political equation. Now, what does Joe Biden bring to the table? And I think we need to really start analyzing this because it's not enough. We all know, yes, Biden supported the invasion of Iraq. He supported the invasion of Afghanistan. During the Obama administration, he was a major figure in support of drones, although he was also someone who was on the side of pulling out of Afghanistan. For decades, Joe Biden has definitely worked towards creating a much more militaristic, empire-driven democratic foreign policy. And of course, that has been the mainstream of democratic foreign policy for decades. Now, there's a couple of areas we need to be very clear about, um, including one uh, that's potentially, one or two that are potentially positive, and then the overall big picture. But first, let's look at Joe Biden's response to the assassination of Soleimani briefly. And just to be very clear here, the only person who objected to it on basic grounds of the vicious illegality of it was, of course, Bernie Sanders. Joe Biden, this is all process. Because he refuses uh, to level with the American people about the dangers which he has placed American troops and our diplomatic corps, personnel and civilians as well as our partners and allies, are, or demonstrated even a modicum of presidential gravitas, I will attempt to do that. That starts with an honest accounting of how we got where we are. Make no mistake that this outcome is a strategic setback, heightened threats, chance of death to America, once more echoing across the Middle East. Iran and its allies are vowing revenge that was unavoidable. The seeds of danger were planted by Donald Trump himself on May the 8th, 2018, the day the president tore up the nuclear deal against the advice of his own top national security advisors, the day he turned his back on our closest European allies and decided it was important to him to destroy any progress made by the Obama-Biden administration, then build on it and create a better, safer world. Now, there's one part of that that's important. Joe Biden has chosen to emphasize his role in the Iran nuclear deal and has made some noises towards trying to re-enter that deal, although, of course, the U.S. has no credibility on it now. But that would be an unmitigated positive signal. On the Middle East, even as the Democratic Party mainstream has sort of moved in a slightly moderate direction, which is just simply to say that the United States' official foreign policy, even under the most supportive administrations of Israel, has been to support some form of a two-state solution. So some mainstream Democrats have started to say, basically, we should actually follow through on that in a policy sense. Nothing on what the nature of Israel and Palestine is, nothing on full democracy for all, but at the very least, a bare minimum support 
for some form of probably what's now is frankly a completely logistically and physically impossible two-state solution. Now, Biden is to the right on this. This is something that he has not moved on at all and is in contradiction with uh, his right moves on the Iran policy. But this is an important thing to note. These are a couple of clips from a couple of uh, polls from a piece that was written up in Mondo Weiss that I recommend every everyone read. Mark Melman is a veteran Democratic pollster who also works uh, with candidates overseas, including in Israel. And he's the president of the Israeli lobby group, the one that ran those ads against Jamal Bowman before he happily got rid of Elliot Engel. This is Melman talking to a group about the joint Biden-Sanders task forces. And it's interesting because he acknowledges that there was some sort of concessions on certain domestic policy areas, which he doesn't have a problem with. But he says Israel and Middle East was not in the equation. As our friends in the former Soviet Union used to say, it's no coincidence that there was not a task force on foreign affairs. There was this decision to do joint task forces on domestic issues, on global warming, healthcare, and other issues. I think it's fair to say that it was felt that it would not be productive with respect to foreign policy, and it was not done with reason. We've had a number of ongoing conversations with platform drafters in the Biden campaign, and I'm very pleased that we think we're going to see text that continues the tradition of strong support for Israel the Democratic Party's had in the past and that Joe Biden has displayed personally. It is possible that people will try to amend the platform at the drafting committee level and then down the road in a couple of weeks in the platform, potentially even at the convention. But I think those attempts are not likely to succeed, but we are certainly alert to those attempts and we'll be fighting against any attempt to amend the platform in any anti-Israel way. So no substantive turn in that area at all. Of course, no substantive turn in terms of massive military expenditures, which already, of course, exceed and combined all of our even remotest competitors. One area of difference that is important is that Trump has been absolutely committed to tearing up global arms control agreements. Biden has indicated he wants to work in the opposite direction. That's significant. That's real. With China, the similarities are actually going to be more similar in some ways than we might anticipate, because starting with Obama's pivot to Asia, there was a recognition that the extraordinarily arrogant U.S. attitude that treating China like a giant sweatshop and investing in it would lead it to liberalization and some form of sort of corporate pseudo-democracy like the United States. That has not happened. China has its own model, and China is competing in its own terms, even as, as an example, they're engaging in absolutely vicious human rights violations of the Uyghur population. But the big danger in the United States now is an emerging bipartisan consensus on a new militarized approach to China and new justifications for ballooning Pentagon budgets and an absolutely reckless approach to international affairs. It's so reckless that Brad Sherman, a conservative Democrat from California, the conservative in the race to replace Elliot Engel as chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, has said that even if you don't like his record on the Middle East, which is terrible, he is there to fight the Pentagon on budget increases with regards to a new Cold War with China. Of course, policy towards Russia has been absolutely disastrous and embarrassing and been used as simply a boogeyman for everything. Of course, it's not to say, obviously, that there aren't criticisms of all of these places and there isn't complexity, but international relations needs to be working towards disarmament and a cooling of escalated tensions. Biden also, of course, was terrible both in his Senate career and the Obama administration in 
repressing left governments in Latin America and elsewhere, and there is no signal on anything different in Africa uh, with regards to AFRICOM or debt relief. So there are some areas of actual difference that are important, just like there is in domestic policy and obviously should influence how you think about the election and vote. But the core questions of empire, especially in a time of declining capacity, are not on the table. Wow, that was the most like nuanced and uh, comprehensive comparative analysis I've seen on foreign policy, especially when it comes to these two candidates. Um, and I appreciate that you bring up uh, and acknowledge Trump's drone war, because I think it's something that has been completely ignored by um, elements of the left who had a, yeah, I think, genuine and sincere issue with the Obama administration's drone program. But you can't be highly critical of Obama and then pretend as if uh, what Trump is doing isn't as bad, if not worse. And based on the numbers that you provided, is worse, is worse. Absolutely. You know, his rhetorical nonsense um, during his campaign meant nothing. Nothing. Because he said what he needed to say to appeal to uh, certain voters and they felt, hey, you know what? He might be lying. It's a wild card. But let's go with Trump because we know what we're going to get with Hillary. Well, now we know what we've gotten with Trump. And I think it's important to do these types of nuanced discussions where you acknowledge uh, where Biden falls short because the same neoliberal incentive model is still there. Exactly. And yeah. that's what drives him. That's what motivates him. Yep. Um, and we need to talk about tackling that, really, if we, if we want to get rid of um, the forever wars that we engage in. Yeah, that's um, a, but I yeah, I just I thought agree. that was such a good segment. I really appreciate that. And I completely agree. And um, I just want to shout out, actually, for someone who really takes this stuff deeply seriously across the board and has just done a lot of work. Uh, Abby Martin has some great documentaries on both like Afghanistan policy in general, but also on Trump. I mean, Trump is an amplification of empire for sure. Mm -hmm. And he's not a pullback. I mean, he says some things that are correct sometimes, for sure. And Afghanistan's an example. And the blob in Washington is totally real. But we need to have that structural fight. Absolutely. Well, um, I'm going to take us back to some of the domestic politics that are occurring right now, um, particularly the activism and, and some of the issues that viewers had with uh, a very spontaneous conversation that Nando and I had last week. So Nando Vila and I were talking casually and spontaneously about cancel culture and the whole hashtag movement to boycott Goya Foods. Of course, this was in response to the CEO uh, of Goya saying that he is a Trump supporter. He appeared at some Trump event and talked about how uh, Trump is this great president. And, and understandably, people in um, on the left, members of the Latino community did not like that. And they uh, felt betrayed because Goya is a staple brand in Latino communities um, throughout the United States. So uh, I understand that feeling of betrayal. I understand, you know, the frustration for a CEO to identify with Trump or to support Trump. I'm not taking anything away from that. But the reason why I personally, I'm not speaking for Nando, I personally had a problem with the uh, boycott movement on social media is because this isn't my first rodeo. And so I've experienced multiple boycott movements throughout my career. And it's 
And I have been on board with some of those movements and then later felt a little frustrated, maybe a little weak because of what the outcome was of those boycotts. And that actually forced me to look into the historical context of boycotts. Have they ever worked? How do they work? And what can we do to actually take the frustrations that we feel and use them to change the system rather than focus solely on shaming and punishment online? Because really that's what these boycott movements have become, and they aren't effective. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about where boycotts have been successful. But first, let me just focus specifically on um, a critique that I I saw on Twitter. And, um, you know, I don't want this person in any way to feel attacked. I just think that this is a good starting off point to explain in a more nuanced way why I have some issues uh, with these boycott movements. So uh, this individual writes, can't believe I'm watching Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila on Jacobin whining about cancel culture and shitting on Goya boycott as a distraction. Food is a major part of any culture and Goya is a staple in many Latino households. And uh, continues, not acknowledging the betrayal is tone deaf at best, and what kind of socialists refute that boycotting is a very effective tool, sometimes even the only tool we have for change, this segment is messy. So I actually do uh, refute that boycotts on their own are a very effective tool. I I totally disagree with that. If you have nothing more but a boycott movement on social media, it is not effective. It just isn't. You need to have a well-organized strategic plan in place in order to have the boycott be, you know, a supplement to that, something that can help a movement, something that can help drive the change that you're looking for. But a simple hashtag, I mean, look, it's been a little over a week now. What happened to the boycott movement with Goya? Nothing. And so um, that's one part of it. The other part of it that I just wanted to mention is that increasingly I'm becoming um, a little grossed out by what I'm seeing on social media. That's not to say that people uh, share ideological views or perspectives that I disagree with, maybe in, in some cases might even make me angry. But we have increasingly become and we have supported the type of society that I personally do not want to live in. And it's a society that doesn't actually focus on strategic activism. It focuses on guilt tripping people, shaming people, attempting to destroy the livelihoods of people that individuals disagree with. And it happens both on the right and the left. And I think that creating this type of vigilante surveillance state is going to do absolutely nothing to help working people in this country. It's going to do absolutely nothing to make people happier. It's going to do nothing to build solidarity with people. And it is only further driving us apart from one another into all of these little micro groups that we identify with. And we create these bubbles that are not in any way productive for today's society. And in order for us to really spur change, we need to have dialogue and we need to do so fearlessly 
without worrying that we're going to be cast aside and, you know, blackballed and all of these other forms of punishment that I'm seeing on social media. And yes, it it does play into this whole notion of cancel culture. I highly recommend you guys check out um, the talk that Ben Burgess did for Jacobin on cancel culture. It was one of the most nuanced, um, smart discussions that I've heard on the on the issue. In fact, probably the smartest. So please check that out. But now let me just uh, talk a little bit about you know, just the history of boycott movements and um, how they've played out. So let's focus on recent history because um, this Goya boycott led to pretty much nothing because inevitably there is a counter group that's going to come in and say, oh, oh, the left doesn't like Goya because the CEO supports Trump. By the way, he was also very supportive of the Obamas and helped Michelle Obama with her, you know, healthy living campaign. Um, but let's put that aside for a second. Conservatives came in and said, all right, well, then we're going to go ahead and buy um, mass amounts of Goya. You had Ivanka Trump, uh, you know, posing in a goofy picture on Twitter. Uh, it was embarrassing. She should feel embarrassed. But the Trumps have um, absolutely no self-awareness whatsoever, and they're completely delusional. So she kept that ridiculous picture up. And then immediately after that, um, conservatives did stock up on the product. I don't know how much of an impact it had on Goya as a business. Uh, but what I do know is it's not a publicly traded company. It's kind of hard to see if this uh, negatively or positively impacted the price of its shares because it's not, again, a publicly traded company. But we did hear about right-wing activists who uh, took matters into their own hands. And here's a quick example of that. Let's go to the video. Well, now there is a counter push, a boycott actually, pushing back against the boycott. One supporter has started a GoFundMe page to buy Goya products. Casey Harper is the man who's doing it. He's on the screen right now. Casey, all right, let's get right at it. How much have you... Yeah, I think you've only been doing this a couple of days. How much have you right. raised? Well, we started on Saturday afternoon, and uh, we're already up. I just refreshed. If you refresh every you know, few minutes, you'll see a different number, but we're over 160,000 now, so it's really taken off. And so the CEO of Goya didn't uh, in any way uh, backpedal or equivocate his support for Trump. Uh, He went on Fox News and continued saying that he supports Trump and also mentioned that he was supportive of the Obamas. And the reason why he was supportive of both administrations is because he's a CEO. We need to address how the elite class is going to do anything and everything possible to suck up to political power because this entire system is based on quid pro quos. It's all based on, hey, favor for a favor. What can I do to be friendly to this administration? What can I do to donate money to uh, the administration's reelection campaign? What can I do to suck up to power so I get my tax cuts, so I get all of the business favors that I'm looking for, which, of course, only further um, enrich the elite class? That's what we need to focus on. But instead of doing that, it's oh, this person supports a candidate or a politician I dislike, and as a result, I'm going to publicly shame that person. I have news for you. uh, The elite class doesn't care. Only 25% of boycotts lead to a public statement apologizing or maybe backtracking. That means 75% of the time, these boycotts do nothing. 
Um, And that's pretty devastating if you're actually serious about trying to change a system. And by the way, the outcome of the Goya boycott reminded me a lot of what happened with Chick-fil-A back in 2012 when uh, the COO of the company, Dan Cathy, was uh, very transparent in how he did not support same-sex marriage. Liberals were very upset about that. They said that they were going to go ahead and uh, boycott Chick-fil-A. So how did that turn out? Let's look at the video. From South Carolina to Texas and Ohio, Chick-fil-A supporters turned out in force Wednesday to stand up for the fast food chain. Thousands and thousands of people. But it wasn't just about the chicken. Marriage is between one man and one woman. Many showed up to back Dan Cathy, Chick-fil-A's president and COO. But on Facebook, more than 600,000 people answered former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee's call for a Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day. This is where I just want to take a stand on God's word and come here and have a meal. So that's it. And so, look, I I don't mean to pick on boycotts uh, that have been started by liberals or maybe even people on the left, because every political ideology is guilty of doing this. A recent example involving uh, the right wing had to do with Nike's ad campaign featuring uh, Colin Kaepernick. And if you can recall uh, that campaign, I thought it was awesome. Um, It included the text saying, believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. And of course, conservatives were angry about it. They couldn't take it. Uh, There were all sorts of embarrassing videos posted on social media of right-wingers burning their Nike shoes. Here's a quick example for you. Here I am in Florida during a tropical storm and Nike done me the off. Burn mother. <laughs> Seems like a pleasant guy. Um, so, <laughs> all right. Uh, what happened to Nike following this uh, conservative boycott of the brand? Um, about a week later, its uh, shares shot up. Uh, it did really well because it's a corporation that has um, an incentive to profit as much as humanly possible. And they made uh, a calculated decision to feature Colin Kaepernick because they knew that it would help their sales. And it did. And so the conservative boycott didn't work. It was just like the conservative boycott of Disneyland years ago. That didn't work. There's been all sorts of boycotts, both by the right and the left, that have been embarrassing. And I think what we're seeing with social media is the quick dopamine rush that people get when they're part of this kind of movement. In your mind, it's substituting real activism and doing the hard work that's necessary for systemic change. And um, there have been uh, incredibly important scholarly studies on boycotts and how effective they really are. Um, There's a professor uh, from Northwestern University, Braden King, who actually gave a great interview uh, to Freakonomics Radio, but I want to read a quick quote. And he says, it's just hard to stop buying a product you're used to buying. Even consumers who are ideologically supportive of a boycott don't tend to follow through and support the boycott because they they won't want to change their behavior. And so you might hear all of the uh, statements about how people are going to boycott something. You might see the tweets or the posts on Facebook. 
But whether people actually carry out that boycott with action uh, remains to be seen in a lot of cases. And look, that's not to say that boycotts can't be helpful as part of a movement. If you take a boycott on its own and you don't have like a, a, an activist infrastructure around it, if you don't have strategy around it, it'll lead to nothing. And that's what we've seen in all the various examples that I've given you guys. But I'll give you the example of the Montgomery bus boycott, which I think is such an excellent example. Was it the Montgomery bus boycott that spurred change during the civil rights movement? Of course not. In fact, the NAACP uh, wrote about this on their website, and I wanted to share some of it with you. And of course, it has to do with Rosa Parks and how she refused to move to the back of the bus. The NAACP writes, contrary to the folkloric uh, accounts of her civil rights role, Miss Parks or Mrs. Parks was not too tired to move from her seat. Rather, she had been a knowledgeable NAACP stalwart for many years and gave the organization the incident it needed to move against segregation in the unreconstructed heart of the Confederacy. Uh, Montgomery, Alabama. Mrs. Parks headed the youth division of the Montgomery NAACP branch for years. So there was actual coordination, organizing, um, you know, people who had a plan in mind when this incident happened with Rosa Parks. And as soon as uh, the event took place, they moved into gear, went to the courts, Right. And it, this case, even though uh, Rosa Parks wasn't part of the final Supreme Court case, the issue of civil rights did go to the Supreme Court. And that was where uh, people were able to accomplish some change. I give you that example because, again, the boycott on its own didn't lead to change. But having that as part of a well thought out strategic plan was important. It was it was part of it. Uh, But I think that what we're seeing right now is just like that quick fix. Like, I don't like this. I don't like what someone said. I don't like this tweet from 10 years ago. I don't like that this CEO is CEOing and doing what a CEO is supposed to do by looking out for his own self-interest. So I'm going to put out a nasty tweet or start a boycott movement with a hashtag on Twitter and it'll feel good for a day or two and then I'll forget about it. And that's what we're seeing every single week at this point with um, this social media activism. And I just want people to know that if you want real change, if you are genuine and sincere about it, then act like it and, and recognize where we've fallen short, where we can improve and don't take critiques like this personally, because you're justified in being upset at how this system is. You're justified in being horrified uh, by CEOs who would support someone as cruel and vicious as Donald Trump. But the reason why I was dismissive of the Goya boycott is because I knew exactly how it would turn out. And I was right. So, uh, Michael, let me know what you think. No, I think that there's so much there. And I think that the confusion of tactics and strategy and and just there, there's so many things to unpack. Um, and again, really making like there's the efficacy, but then it's like, you know, whatever. Goya is different than like an individual. I think, you know, that's a very important distinction. But the actual efficacy of these things, I'll just say real quick before we get to Vivek, like, even going back to the 90s, uh, I don't think he ended up doing it, but Dick Morris, who was, you know, Bill Clinton's advisor and advised all these Republicans, just kind of like a caricature of like an amoral political consultant. He was pitching to brands. He's like, I'll do politics for brands. Like, I want to work for Reebok and do ads that show Nike sweatshops. 
And in a funny way, like, you know, brands are never going to go that aggressive, obviously, because they're all using sweatshops in that example. But that sort of like consumer activism is baked into the cake. Like, I think people need to really remind themselves that the companies are extremely sophisticated and they're making calculations constantly. So it's like they know about this, this conversation about consumer boycotts and how it can be leveraged and what trade-offs to make, just like you said in the perfect Nike example. I mean, Nike looked at its numbers and it's like, great. Some asshole has like a tantrum about Colin Kaepernick. That will move even more units. Like the freak out is baked into it. And so, you know, the the boycotts that are part of an overall strategy that actually fit. Um, and even there, you know, like I think so, I think it's still a really important tactic, but we have to look like, what what do boycotts mean now when a company like Amazon has basically a limitless access to resources and federal bailout funds? I mean, these are really big questions mm-hmm. that we're going to actually have to deal with. But I loved it. Yeah, exactly. And and one final thing that I want to mention, because you could even look at this uh, on a macro scale or you could look at how it's applied in in foreign policy, right? So uh, in South Africa, I know you've been talking about South Africa a lot. During the apartheid in the United States, there was a boycott divestment movement. Right. Uh, but that boycott div- divestment movement did not work because, um, you know, business interests in South Africa were able to uh, do the trade that they needed to re- stay alive and remain highly profitable by doing it through other African countries, right? So there are always loopholes, there are always ways uh, to work around a boycott. Again, that's not to say I mean, that what's a boycott tricky or investment like, movement. So I'm sorry not to interrupt. It's like it did work yeah. bec- to the extent that they were worried about the international perception of them in a different time. Yes. So like Israel isn't as an example. So I think, again, I do think like BDS against apartheid or against Israel is like correct, but I think you're totally right. And like we fetishize these things that can easily be worked around. They are worked around. They usually hit, if you're talking on a nation state, like normal people, they don't hit like the power centers in a society. And then it's also like, especially when you're thinking about, public perception, the concerns, like, I am so thankful that apartheid was destroyed in the late 80s and early 90s, that that's when the transition happened. Because in 2020, there would be a lot of governments that would be extremely comfortable with supporting that system overtly. Um, so, you know, I, I, but yeah, so we're, we're like actually going in the opposite direction globally of like the efficacy of these things. So it's stuff to like, really think about. I completely agree with you. So um, let's take a quick break. And uh, I have no doubt that this is part of the conversation that we'll be having with Vivek uh, when we come back. Really looking forward to this. Stick around. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Weekends with myself, Michael Brooks, and the great Anna Kasparian. Joining us now is Vivek Chibber. Very excited to have him on. He's a professor of sociology at New York University. He's also an editor at Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy, which definitely, if you're watching this show, in addition to uh, Jacobin Magazine, you should certainly be checking out and subscribing to, ideally. Uh, Vivek, thanks so much for being here. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Starting, we're going to talk about... Uh, partially, mostly a piece you actually wrote three years ago called The Road to Power, which people can look up in Jacobin, um, and getting to some of these kind of strategic questions that we try to explore on the show. But to set the stage for that, can you give us, I think you give the clearest explanation of anybody of the relationship between capitalism and the state and how that relationship works. Yeah, uh, relationship is basically this, that, that in a capitalist economy, States have the uh, the promise of being neutral uh, once democratic rights are handed out, and states uh, present themselves as arbiters of social interests. And in many politicians' minds, that's exactly what they're doing. But the structure of the system is set up in such a way that states really have no real alternative but to prioritize the interests of asset holders, of capitalists. In most political debates, and in political discussions, like even in the Sanders campaign, the mechanism that's supposed to be behind this bias on the part of the state is the fact that elections are funded by private money. So because the funders and the funder class is rich, um, politicians have to listen to them. And to the extent that elections are funded by private money, that's true. But underneath that is even a more powerful mechanism, which remains in place even if you get rid of private money in the electoral campaign. Even if you have a publicly funded electoral system, it will be a better system. It will be less biased towards capitalist interests, but it will still have no choice but to prioritize those interests nonetheless. And the reason for that is simple. By definition, in a capitalist economy, states don't generate their own revenue. They are dependent on revenue from the economy because the means of production are not owned by the state. In a communist system, The state owns the means of production. It controls them. If it wants to have a bigger budget, more revenue, it can just take its state enterprises and produce more with them, and the profits go straight into the state. In a capitalist economy, all revenues come from means of production, factories, restaurants, warehouses, hotels that are owned by private entrepreneurs. The only way the state gets money is by taxing them. The problem is taxes depend on income generation. And income generation depends on investment by the private sector. So whatever government is in power, whatever it wants to do, whatever programs it's endorsing, right-wing or left-wing, if it wants to be able to fund those programs, at some point, even if it goes into a deficit, even if it does uh, prime pumping, it's going to have to go back to what the, the revenue source is to be able to raise those funds. The revenue source, the hand on the spigot, is the hand of capitalists. If they decide not to invest, if they're unhappy with you and decide to move their capital, if they're unhappy with you and decide to simply put it into finance, if they're unhappy with you and decide to just sit on it, you end up with a fiscal crisis. So every government, when it comes into power, has to first prioritize the interests of the golden goose, the goose that lays the egg, and that's the capitalist class. What varies from country to country is how much that bias is in fact pronounced, how bad it is. In social democratic countries, because there's a counterweight, that bias is less pronounced. 
in countries like the U.S. where there's no counterweight, it's complete hegemony, complete um, control by the capitalist class, which is then reinforced by the electoral rules, but it's not itself based on the electoral rules. Vivek, one of the things that you write about that I think is so important is the makeup of the left in the United States and how it's actually served as a detriment to accomplishing some of the goals that we desperately need in this country. Um, So for instance, uh, most of activism done by the left is by middle-class individuals rather than workers. And so how do we change that? How do we shift that? And why is there a disconnect uh, between, you know, the middle class left, the activists um, and the workers who we do desperately need in order to spur uh, real change in the system. OK, let me take a second question first, which is why does okay. it exist? Um, it ex- there have been two times in modern history where this disconnect connect existed. One was um, in the period after the 1848 revolution, <laughs> that's a long time ago, um, when the modern left didn't really exist and the labor movement had a lot of certain amount of churning in it, um, the left was still dominated by kind of a liberal intelligentsia. And it's in the 1880s and 90s that you see the birth of what we would today call the modern labor movement, which had an articulate and committed socialist element in it, sometimes coming from uh, middle-class individuals who were déclassé, who kind of left their surroundings and moved physically into working-class areas, started organizing them, um, or sometimes from intellectuals that were generated from the class itself, usually skilled workers who had literacy, who had a certain amount of self-confidence, and more importantly, who had a lot of leverage because they had very scarce skills. That era starts in the 1880s and 90s and continues all the way, I would say, into the 1970s. This is an era where if you were on the left, you took it for granted that you were in some way either directly implanted within working class communities or you were in the milieu of an organization that was directly implanted in it. And that organization influenced you, disciplined you, kind of gave you a culture, a moral and a political anchor. And the activism of that time, it's actually the wrong word. We can talk about what activism means. It's a bullshit word. Uh, the activism of that time, the organizing of that time was directed towards mobilizing the working class and holding yourself accountable to the working class. That really comes to an end in the 70s and 80s, first of all, primarily starting in the English-speaking world, and by that I mean England and the United States, not Australia. It's in the Atlantic world where that starts, first in the U.S., then later in England with the epical minor strike, which was decimated and destroyed by Thatcher and by the British employers. What happens in these two countries is that the trade union movement is basically decimated. Now, that's the second, that's the denouement of a process that started earlier, the first part of which was the destruction of the communist parties and the smaller socialist parties around them. These organizations had been the politically articulate, the strategically um, kind of uh, ideologically and strategically savvy part of the labor movement. In the United States, by soon after the McCarthy era, that's pretty much over. The Communist Party is reduced to a tiny size, and it moves very rapidly to the right anyway, towards pure electoralism and a kind of very, by the books, black nationalism. In England, it comes a little bit later. The destruction of the communists on the one hand, who had been the strategic arm 
of the trade union movement and the more radical arm. And then later, the trade union movement means that now the left is reduced to certain individuals in certain places who have certain values, almost all coming from the middle class. And there's only one place left for them to go. That's the university. Mm -hmm. Now, when they go into the universities, I think, and this is, I, I came in at the tail end of that. These are the people who I was around in the U.S. when I moved to the U.S. I don't think they realized fully what was happening. They thought they were simply on an island, like Survivor. And they could subsist on that island, gather their forces, and come back out when conditions were better. What they did not fully understand, I think, and still many of them refused to admit, this is not an island. Universities have a class and an institutional context. Universities are primarily a place where professionals come for upward mobility. And when you put a bunch of self-identified socialists and Marxists in universities and you give them university jobs, they are going to sooner or later start internalizing the aspirations, the ambitions, and the goals of university professionals, which is upward mobility, not organizing. Even if they want to organize, how are they going to do it? You're sitting in a fucking classroom. You're sitting in a classroom. Oh, please. You don't have any access. Unless you don't want to do it. You're imagining what you're going to do if you ever tried organizing them. And 15, 20 years into it, who have you been recruiting into your organization for 20 years? Grad students. People who want to get jobs for themselves. People who see things that are problematic in the country, but as their numbers increase, the odds increase, the most of the people you're bringing in, what they're pissed off about is what they're doing. And so you turn from an anti-capitalist left to an anti-discrimination left. The left today is fundamentally an anti-discrimination left. That means what's it want? It wants to remove restrictions from upward mobility. That's its fundamental goal. It is so institutionally and structurally removed from people who are the manual laborers, the blue-collar laborers, the people who work for wages in a living, it's very hard for them, A, to conceptualize what that world is. B, they don't instinctively care about it. And the cap today is this, in my opinion. The left today, much of what we call the left, the university-based left, has no interest in organizing beyond itself. It's, in fact, it's the level of contempt and paternalism and condemnation that I've seen on the left for working people. You literally, they have to come in and fill out a form before they are deemed worthy of being supported. This is the basket of deplorables. I think. It's not just Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton is simply the more visible end of the progressive intelligentsia. If the go-to position, you walk into any meeting of the left today, the go-to position is, how do we deal with the working class's conservatism, their X, their Y, their Z, and how do we teach them. The position of middle class, day class A intellectuals going to the working class for 120 years was our job is to learn about their conditions and make ourselves relevant to them. The position of the left today is how do they become worthy of us? So it's not a left that's going to go anywhere. I wanted to, I completely agree with you. I know that the standard, and I think I'm even seeing it in the chat, so forgive me, but like the standard kind of easy response to that is, aren't you describing liberals and not leftists? Absolutely not. Right. I, listen, I lived through the 90s and 2000s. I've been around those sects on the left. The go-to position was, first of all, regarding the working class was, the working class is racist, it's misogynistic, it's imperialistic, it's conservative, and 
that working class is an obstacle to progressive change. Now, mind you, a lot of that's true. But the fact that the matter is, whatever their ideology is, that's your constituency. And you're not going to win them over by lecturing to them. You either have the position that they're born this way, or you have the position that their social conditions, which are making it rational for them to adopt certain positions. There will be a certain stratum that's hidebound and you're not going to win over. But if you really believe that the essence, the soul of the class is that they're a basket of deplorable, the best you're ever going to do is you're going to lecture them. That's the best you're ever going to do. But to more typically, it's a suspicious. I can give you hundreds of stories about this. It is not that they, the dividing line between the liberal intelligentsia and the left intelligentsia is way for thin. Yeah, I, I just want to read a quick excerpt from, from your piece that I thought was just so on point and so powerful. And I'm hoping you can kind of elaborate on it now, three years later, um, you know, in the context of, you know, the Goya boycott and some of the stuff that we're seeing on Twitter. You said um, in regard to uh, the left, they tend to... Uh, you know, be about language, individual identity, body language, consumption habits, and the like. This is a natural consequence of a left that's in fact small groups of people in middle class settings who have no organic way of getting trained in class politics. I thought that, that was so on point. And so um, can you elaborate on that a little more? Yeah. Universities have always been a recruitment ground for socialist parties and communists. The difference between our time today and the earlier times is this. The earlier times, you would have student wings of the Communist Party, the student wings of Socialist parties. And the idea was you bring them in, and then you send them out. You bring them into the student wing of the party. They become members of the party. My wife, Nivedita, was like that. She became a, in Delhi in college. She was the vice president of her college on a communist ticket. You came into the party. They socialized you. And then they sent you out to do actual organizing. That is the actual school of politics. And for middle class people, it's essential because that's where you see a lot of your conceptions about what social priorities ought to be, how to articulate social demands, how to understand people's consciousness in the working class, consciousness, which, you know, initially you may not be very happy with, but and above all, how to make yourself relevant to them. That's where you learn it. You can't learn it simply in a seminar room or in a camp. What's happened now is because by the 80s, the institutional links that could have connected students and upwardly mobile professionals who were trying to commit sort of class suicide, the institutional and organizational links that could have provided a conveyor belt from the university into those settings, that was destroyed. So they were literally on this class island. Once that happens, well, what is it that you try to do? First of all, you're no longer in the position as you were in the 50s and 60s of actually initiating class rebellions, class organizing. You can't initiate it because you're in a very weird institutional setting. So the first thing that happens is you have to piggyback on other people's organizing events. You can have campus protests. You can have campus meetings. But to go outside the campus, you have to kind of rely on what other people are doing. So the left becomes more of a spectator that is now sort of uh, free riding on actual organizing efforts. It can't do a lot of organizing itself. The second thing that happens, of course, is you turn your attention to whatever, A, you're experiencing the most. Because remember, you're trying to recruit people. How are you going to recruit them? You're going to say, hey, are you angry? Are you unhappy? Are you pissed off? Are you treated badly? Come to our organization. We'll help you change the world. 
come in and they say, well, what is it that's pissing me off? It's how I'm treated in my class setting. It's how my upward mobility is frustrated because of sexism or racism or something like that. So not only do you lose the ability to organize the class, not only do you start focusing on symbolic things because that's all you can really focus on, something much more pernicious happens. The way you understand racial oppression, the way you understand gender oppression also changes. Racial oppression now becomes racism as middle-class people feel. Gender oppression also undergoes the same change. So the very program that would excite you and the, you, the prism through which you're looking out, even at what we call identity politics, that changes too. It becomes a lot narrower. And the roots of that go back to this profound epical victory in the 80s when non-campus, non-university working class organizations were destroyed once, hopefully not once and for all, but for the long term, it's been two gen three generations out. We don't see any way out of it right now. Yeah, and this, this brings us to an, a really important distinction that actually I think is very reflective in your piece as well. One of the things that's so disturbing to me about the, I mean, you know, I critique the identitarian frame and all the woke stuff and the, you know, just the, the, all the toxicity and moralism and bad politics, which, you know, you're alluding to where it comes from structurally. But it's, it's very important because I want to be clear when you're talking about non-discrimination. One of the things that's most disturbing right now to me is that there is a sort of edge of culturalist politics that their discussions are all on sort of monitoring various personal moralities or how things show up in the corporate setting, even as there actually is a systemic uh, right-wing attempt in the formal sense. You know, the Roberts Court gutted the Roting Rights Act in 2013. I mean, the, the, the substantive rights that are absolutely non-negotiable or you literally have an apartheid state are actually under siege. And somehow in the middle of this sort of obsession with very specific class positions and kind of like prescriptive moralisms, you're losing the other side of the equation, which is that substantively there actually is a serious problem. And that to me also leads to, you know, some who identify as the sort of socialist left being really flippant about like, oh, well, that's bourgeois values. Well, yeah, <laughs> right. That's part of the mix. Yeah. Interesting thing about bourgeois values. I really believe that we talked about this once before, Mike. Um, but let me deepen it a little bit more. What we call bourgeois liberal values were won by working people. They weren't won by the middle class. They weren't won by elites. They were so the right to vote, the right, to, uh, the anti-discrimination laws that you see. The civil rights movement was fundamentally rooted in working class black communities sharecroppers from it wasn't in fact the, the 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 movement came to an end when it went beyond just formal liberal rights and started moving towards economic rights not just because that's the moment when american capitalists said ah, okay you've gone far enough we'll give you your rights but you can't have the other stuff it's also because that's when the black middle class started losing interest in it as well the, the, the fact about liberal culture is this what we call liberal culture and many leftists disparage as merely bourgeois, merely uh, 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 rights-based, that liberal culture was in place and flourished as long as labor was able to give it some sort of muscle and support. Once you take away the labor movement, 
And the, the reason it matters is that it's the only real force that is a counterweight to the power, the structural power of capital. Once you take away the power and the counterweight of that movement, all you've got left in society, power-wise, is the power of people who hate democratic rights. That's the economic elite. That's capitalism. Once their hatred of democratic rights has no organized opposition to it, you're going to see the culture of rights also start to dissipate. Not just a socialist movement dissipating, the crux, the essence, what is valuable in liberal bourgeois culture also starts to degenerate. It's, there's two sources for this. One is, as we see in the U.S., capitalists and their legal and their ideological and political um, uh, servants launch a direct attack on it through the court, through legislation, etc. But the second is, once you take people's social supports away from them in the form of pensions, of unions, wages, benefits, housing, childcare, it becomes a Hobbesian world. It's a world of all against all. It's a world in which it's every man for himself. The only social support you have now is your kith and your kin, which ends up strengthening ethnic, racial identities, etc. And you get a balkanization and tribalization of society rather than the collective solidarities that even a welfare state start, is able to support. Forget about socialism. One of the great things about a welfare state is because it's universalistic, people feel they have a common stake in it. That's no longer the case. That, of course, is going to corrode a liberal culture. It's, of course, going to corrode a culture of mutual respect and valuation. So now you've got a pincer movement. From top, the elites are taking away even the formal rights you have. At the bottom, people are so busy scrambling to sustain themselves, seeing everybody else as a potential competitor, seeing everybody else as a potential rival, that it corrodes the cultural and normative basis for liberal culture as well. So for those socialists who say, oh, this is just merely bourgeois rights, understand something. Those bourgeois rights were won by working people. And the evisceration of those rights also has to do with the evisceration of working people's organization. So even if you're a liberal, even if you see yourself as somebody who simply reads, you know, Vox every day or something like that, you have a direct interest in supporting the labor. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, I have one final question um, because I thought it was interesting that you uh, are not as receptive uh, to the criticisms of a more gradual approach. Um, and can you explain why that is? I mean, if you have a better idea, if anybody if anybody thinks they can flip a switch and make a revolution, count me in. I'm there. A lot of people, do, you know, it's a lot of people do. I, it, it drives me crazy, but a lot of people do. Uh, yeah, you know, cool. the great, rejection I mean, of incrementalism, but it, I think it's it's actually a pretty big problem. Like we can't get on the same page because talking about these things strategically um, and and talking about the importance of even if you move the dial uh, a little bit. In the beginning, it's still progress, right? You don't stop there; you keep going. But many, uh, you know, people on the left uh, reject that approach. Fine, they uh, they welcome to go make a revolution, whatever they want to do. Though <laughs> I really and I I believe we're talking about a very very tiny sliver of people. You know, you usually know who they are. You know, they're the ones who are either holdovers from the '60s or the ones who can't make eye contact when you enter a room and they don't quite know how to talk to you. <laughs> These are not people who are going to move it. This would be a problem if we had a gigantic political organization and there were two gigantic wings of it, one saying 
the time is right, comrades, let's have a revolution. And the other saying, no, we need to be. What it is, is basically the left is a big, gigantic talking shop right now of a lot of people who have varying opinions. And if the, I used to worry about this, that, oh, my God, the left actually thinks you can make a revolution. Probably the matter is, since it's not going to happen, um, and there's only about a dozen of them anyway, they, they can continue whatever. I don't know what they do, but whatever it is they're doing, they can do it. What's interesting about this moment is, thanks to the Bernie Sanders campaign, there's a whole generation of young activists from 18 to 25 to 30 who actually, for the first time in 40 years, got some some tiny amount of political experience. And instead of spending their times debating Rosa Luxemburg, the general strike, or Sorrel in the Sorrelian moment, what they're starting to do for the first time is think about how to win actual victories, however small they might be. So it's the first step towards a sober left that's attuned to the actual moment, to the actual contradictions and the uh, possibilities of the time, um, that reaching out to them, making sure that their morale stays high, making sure that they are able to take this momentum somewhere else is far, far more important than this tiny little rump that wants to you know, smoke a blunt and talk about revolution. <laughs> I love it. Oh, I love it. I don't know why you got to personalize it, but um, uh, final question from me. And this this is big. You can go off in a lot on in a lot of different directions, but I'm going to just quote from you because I think that these things actually help sort of contextualize everything we've covered. This is from the same piece. There are two broad legacies of the Russian Revolution: an organizational one and an institutional one. And you do actually update those in ways that are relevant to the actual contradictions of the moment we're in, not just sort of going backwards into a fantasy about having another, you know, historical moment from 1917 replicate itself now. So can you just talk about that? And I think that will bring everything together. Yeah. Um, let me start with the organizational, because I think that's the really big one right now. The organizational dilemma we're in is this. Uh, the legacy of the Russian Revolution organizationally was something called the Leninist Party. And that was what the Communist Party said. And the Leninist Party um, has this very interesting kind of uh, bimodal uh, quality to it. On the one hand, it is universally criticized as turning into something that was undemocratic, over-centralized, um, that became a kind of a coterie of leaders who manipulated the organization and shut down all debate and all that sort of stuff, and then oversaw their own demise. And so much of the left today, I think rightly, rejects really key parts of that Leninist legacy and says we need something new. But there's a second part of that, second component of that Leninist legacy, which is that the Leninist parties really, and here I include the, in the model, I include the Social Democratic Party, because even though they were not Leninist, they were the one, their organizational structures were really mirrored after the Leninist parties to a substantial extent. That era of party building, which everyone now sees as the old left and the problematic left, was also the last time parties actually were able to do anything significant against capital. So we're left with this dilemma, which is you don't want to simply mimic and ape the Leninist organizations because there's a reason that they all fell apart. But at the same time, we haven't found an alternative that can actually win something and not simply become a talking shop, or as a friend of mine in India says, kind of a, um, a trade fair for NGOs, which is what the World Social Forum ended up becoming. <laughs> we haven't found a way out of that. 
And what I've recommended in this article, and it's only, you know, we have to figure this out through actually trying different things. And so mine was a very general suggestion, which is I don't see any way out of the left having to rely on some kind of cadre-based party that is a mass organization and not just a tiny little sect that we saw coming out of the 70s. So it has to have two components, I think, some sort of ideologically trained cadre, a base in the actual working lives of ordinary people. And thirdly, it's got to be a fighting organization. It can't just be a talking show. You have to realize the great thing the Leninists and the Social Democrats figured out is you have a vote, one side loses, one side wins, but when the resolution comes out, you move forward as a party, some kind of internal discipline. Organizationally, the biggest challenge right now is not even this cadre mentality and reviving the cadre. It's, it's the set structural separation from working people. The biggest organization in this country right now is the DSA. That's the challenge it faces. The DSA is going to have to figure out how to move not just into this electoral stuff that they're doing, but to move out of the professional middle class, the PMC, as everybody likes to say, and implant themselves physically. And Bernie showed the way, if you're right. interested. Uh, the victories in Iowa and Nevada, California, how did they come about? He didn't just go on the air and get people a message. That machine was implanted in Latino, black, immigrant, working class communities, and they took them out to the polls. And they were there for a year and a half, two years. That's why they won. Every place where they tried to just go through the media, they lost. But I think the first organizational challenge is you're going to have to actually make conscious decision to move into where places with working class people live. Institutionally, we have to understand that uh, the biggest institutional challenge is what do you do once you get power? The traditional message was, well, we're going to have a central planned economy. Uh, I'm, I'm skeptical that a centrally planned economy can actually work. You'll have to be somewhat less ambitious. That's a different discussion. I, I don't think we have time for that. Uh, Vivek, can I just say... Uh... <laughs> I yeah, agree. thank you. Oh, yeah. yeah, I don't know what. <laughs> it's an interesting world. I, I was listening to your discussion. <laughs> this is what we talk about now. What What should you buy? Right, and that and that is uh, that's not a sign of winning. Um, <laughs> it, we, you know, those of us who are slightly older on the left, we called it lifestyle politics. Right, it's all lifestyle politics. You know what Anna said? They can absorb it all. It's not. You should not do it. You know. The key thing is boycotts work when they're attached to a movement, as Anna was saying. They are not themselves yeah. a movement. It's, it's, and it's time to stop mollycoddling this nonsense. You know, this is a different moment, Michael, from 2005, 2000. There's a, there's a real, there's a stratum of activists out there. And they've only, they've only just started to get political experience. And there's some tough love that has to be meted out right now. And part of it is just called bullshit when you see it. This is not politics. Right. I, I'll be honest, I don't even know much about the Goya because I didn't even pay attention to it. I, yeah, this right. last two weeks. It'll go, whatever. There's really important, this, these mobilizations against police repression opened up a space for us. Mm-hmm. And that space is being colonized right now at lightning speed with, with white fragility and all racial sensitivity bullshit. training and all this. It's lightning speed. If, you're, if you care to observe it, that space is being taken up by the black professional middle uh, managerial class by the Democratic Party and the corporate wing so fast it's making my head spin, and we're caught up in the vortex, taking one side or the other. The left needs to step back and say, "There's a moment for us right now to actually talk about 
changing municipal budgets so that they attend to people's lives, that movement actually opened up this question. And it's just being shut down under the, the noise of all this other stuff. And there's a logic to it, which we need to be able to analyze. Absolutely. Please, everybody, could you watch and read Vivek Chibber? It's time to stop fucking around. Vivek, <laughs> thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank My you, pleasure. Vivek. Thank you. Yeah, and Vivek was on TMBS. It was an excellent episode. If you haven't watched that yet, uh, he's got multiple books. You can look at his lectures. I mean, again, he's just another one of these. He's just serious, precise, cares about this stuff. And, you know, I think one of the interesting paradoxes is that we actually do need to look for – that's what I tried a little bit. Like I won't go into plugging my book, but that idea of like an actual grounded cosmopolitanism, which I know I need to come up with a better word for, but like – there is some form of we actually need to be about broader cohesion and unity and bridge building. Like it's not just yeah. that all this stuff is like unpleasant and toxic and, and you know, bad and puts people off and, and is unpleasant. All of that stuff is true, but it's also like it is not, you know – we're not trying to be Barbara D'Angelo. Like it isn't like that yeah. is antithetical to the agenda of delivering defunding police, you know, reinventing policing, getting healthcare to everybody, uh, you know, getting housing to everybody like that, like that requires just like the opposite. Like it requires a huge amount of tolerance and broadness of mind and spirit for most people. And again, what's interesting to me is like, you know, this is one of the reasons I admire so many of these Latin American leaders so much. Like they get like read Pepe Mojica. He's so adamant about that and so critical of, you know, various moralisms or whatever. But it's like you have an open society. He was I mean, the quotes that he did about taking prisoners from Guantanamo to Uruguay are some of the most inspiring and no bullshit things I've ever read. But then it's also like, yeah. Then we gotta get, gotta get rid of poverty, gotta get people healthcare. Like you, you gotta focus, yeah. focus. Yes, yes, focus exactly. And and if we had more communicators like Cornell West, I just think that I, I think that the left would be unstoppable. Honestly, I mean, just listen to Cornell West on Joe Rogan's podcast. Joe Rogan was enamored. And I, I mean, look, I'll, I'll acknowledge that he tends to go in the direction of whoever his guest is on any given day. But the the impression that, that West had on Rogan seemed lasting, right? Uh, because he has this way of communicating in a way that doesn't make you feel like you're being judged, doesn't make you feel like, uh, you know, there's moralizing going on. It's just like this accepting, understanding, and enlightened way of communicating that I just think is incredibly important. And right now, when I think of the left, I think of uh, a, a group of people who love to put super heavy weights on before running a marathon. Let's not do that. We don't need to put the weights on. We don't need to attack each other and and find ways to divide ourselves when we have common interests in place that we need to fight for in solidarity. Absolutely. Together. And, yeah. yeah. And just like being human and dealing with humans is also like, that's like the spiritual antithesis of all this stuff. Um, let's do some salt and then we'll take about two super chat questions. Anna, this is a good one because 
this fuses together like we're going to start making these more like we're going to have fun, but we want to actually point to something like we want to walk our talk here like, you know, this is some salt, but it's about a policy. It's about something that actually impacts people. It isn't just, you know, Dave Rubin said something dumb. It's fun, but, you know, we're moving past that. This one is a good fusion because this is actually some, you know, internet commentator saying something extremely stupid, but actually about an enormous and terrifying threat that's threatening the well-being of people in Portland right now and is a national threat to all of our basic civil liberties. Exactly. So let me let me set it up for you. And uh, you'll see exactly what Michael's talking about when he mentions the fusion here. So um, federal agents in unmarked cars detained protesters in Portland. Uh, these are peaceful protesters. As the story was developing after it broke, uh, there were basically agents from the Department of Homeland Security arguing. By the way, from the Department of Homeland Security, they work for immigration, Right. They're the ones going to these protests in Oregon in unmarked cars. You don't know who they are. They could very well be right-wingers who also show up in military gear and, and you know, try to provoke these protesters. They just start snatching people up, uh, detaining them, and giving them absolutely uh, no reason for that detention, right? And so it's, it's a form of intimidation. It's absolutely horrifying. And it's uh, part of a program, by the way, uh, based on incredible reporting by Ken Klippenstein at The Nation that will expand to other cities. So this is something that needs to be attacked and stopped immediately, okay? Because again, it's a form of intimidation by federal agents. Uh, This is uh, terrorizing American citizens, civilians, protesters, people who are protected under uh, the First Amendment of our Constitution. And so it's just, it's incredible to see this happening. And for all of the rhetoric we've heard from the right wing and libertarians in regard to the importance of the Second Amendment to protect us from tyranny, it's incredible to hear uh, some of the excuses and the apologetic language coming from them when it comes to this type of horrible treatment uh, toward the protesters. Um, So the... Uh, federal agents argued, oh, no, 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 it's we we only detained suspects who we believed were attacking police or uh, doing something to property, vandalizing property. There was no evidence of that. Uh, there was one man, Mark Pettibone, um, who was detained and searched. Uh, one man asked him if he had any weapons. He did not. Uh, they drove him to the federal courthouse and placed him in a holding cell. Two officers eventually returned to read his Miranda rights and ask if he would waive those rights to answer a few questions. Luckily, he did not. Almost as suddenly, the Washington Post writes, almost as suddenly as they had grabbed him off the street, the men let him go. The federal officers who snatched him off the street as he was walking home from a peaceful protest did not tell him why he had been detained or provide him any record of an arrest. Um, as far as he knows, he has not been charged with any crimes. And Pettibone said he did not know who detained him. This is a huge problem, right? And so what kind of statements uh, are we hearing from the right wing or from disgusting uh, grifters like Tim Pool? Well, let's hear it. Federal law enforcement to uh, using unmarked vehicles to grab protesters off Portland streets. Let's be honest. There's a word for this. It's black bagging. <laughs> yeah. The story, I'm just going to, I'm not going to bury the lead on this one because I think it's hilarious. Unmarked vehicles pull up, feds jump out, 
and then walk up to Antifa and just snatch him up. Gone. And you know what? I mean, it's funny to think because I'm thinking about like when I was a kid, you know, watching like when I was younger, watching V for Vendetta or any of these movies. You'd imagine that anybody carrying out these governmental black baggings were the bad guys. That's a good point. (laughs) No, not here. So totally misrepresented who uh, the protesters are, referred to them as Antifa. Uh, This was a peaceful protester, the one that I uh, mentioned in in the story, um, who wasn't charged with anything. He wasn't charged with anything. Uh, There was absolutely no uh, probable cause, nothing, nothing. Totally misrepresenting the story and calling it hilarious. Hilarious. There's another word besides black bag. I mean, it's disappearing. I mean, the logic of that, is terrifying for everybody. Not to mention the fact that for months we've seen, you know, overt and vicious police abuse and uh, police attacks of protesters across the country. And the fact that, you know, the the Homeland Security director is talking like, you know, we're going to secure liberty and all this nonsense. Um, The mayor, the governor don't want these people there. They don't want these uh, forces. And obviously this is not going to do anything to of course i mean forget tim pool in terms of like caring about the actual needed urgent reforms that these protests are pointing to and changes but even like the idea of like cooling down a city and building a new civic compact yeah support putting in unmonitored federal officers conducting illegal body grabs of people uh for you know that's really going to help cohesion my only question i know we have something else with tim pool here which is funny and I guess goes back to the V for Vendetta thing. I've stopped using the word grifter. It's, it's Isn't it like overused? Everybody gets called a grifter now. But Tim, I mean, yes, everyone gets called a grifter when like you disagree with them. And look, there are people I disagree with where they're not grifters. They're like actually sincere in their political views. And I might disagree with them, but I respect them. And they're not purposely misrepresenting what they actually believe in order to appeal to the worst elements of society who also happen to have the money to pay you to say those stupid things. Tim Pool falls under that category. Um, and, And the reason why I call him a grifter is because I learned about Tim Pool during Occupy Wall Street when he actually Mm. wasn't a grifter and uh, the complete 180 that he's done in, in an attempt to like appeal to like the worst people and make money off of it is just it's everything that's wrong with the incentive structure with digital media, honestly. Well, let's look at and I mean, yeah, and who the hell knows? But you're totally I mean, the incentive structure, that's yeah, that's a big one to resist. And I guess Tim Pool does the literal opposite of resisting. <laughs> so it seems from everything I've seen of him. But not only that. This is a pretty funny throwback clip because there was a time when Tim Pool didn't think and and forget like we're talking about non-identified federal agents illegally grabbing people in something that would terrify anyone who had any sense of anything, let alone just a standard like, I mean, if Tim Pool thinks that's cool, I would guess that he is definitely the type of guy who wouldn't throw a tantrum if he got pulled over by a police officer. Well, um, and Connor, I actually want to go to the last video here. And this is Tim Pool from, I think, about eight years ago. This was during the Occupy Wall Street protests. He was covering it um, as a citizen journalist in Chicago. And uh, just check out how upset he was at the police treatment of protesters and people covering it. 
For those that are watching right now, for all that is holy, please tweet out. We just got raided. Multiple squad cars surrounded our vehicle right here. We were all pulled out, cuffed, and put up against the hood. A supervisor came by and fanned over to one of the other officers, and he, told, and he pointed at us, swirled his finger. The police came over and uncuffed us and said, we're sorry, your car looks like something that we were, another car we were looking for. Earlier today, the apartment that we're staying at was raided. The person who lives there has given multiple stories, and we have no idea what's true and what's not. See, uh, the car is currently left as it was by the police. I, any way we could get in contact with Ustream because they shut off my stream and didn't save it and didn't archive it, but I got the footage of them pulling me over. I started streaming live. We were just being harassed and intimidated by the CPD. They gave no reason to stop us. Twelve police cars stopped us, interrogated us, put us in handcuffs. It's incredible. It's incredible how upset he was in that video. Where did that um, empathy go for people you know? who are profiled um, or people who have been murdered? The by nature the of the cops yeah. there. No, it's just, it's amazing. It really right. is. Like watching him cry about how he was mistreated while he justifies the absolute terror that protesters are dealing with uh, by the hands of federal agents. It's just disgusting. It's unbelievable. I don't I mean, I can't even add to that. That's just... I mean, that is like, I'm not going to spend that much time talking about, you know, folks like Tim Pool. I think we're all like sort of moving in different directions and different points of focus. But that normalization of something as absolutely foundationally destructive as non-identified federal authorities uh, bagging people on the street, that is a serious and fundamental threat to any even like basic constitutional order. Yeah, exactly. And anything that you, anything terrible that you advocate toward your political enemies, let's just say for the sake of this conversation, um, we'll give Tim Pool the benefit of the doubt and actually uh, believe him when he says these things, right? Um, those abuses will be used against you. It always happens. It always happens. So if you're on the right and you're giddy at the thought of peaceful protesters getting kidnapped by federal agents, not getting charged with anything, no probable cause, okay? Basically, all of your rights are gone, right? If you're an advocate for that because it's happening to your political opponents, just know it's going to turn around and it's going to affect you. It's, I mean, it already did affect Tim Pool to some extent. Um, and it's, it's just amazing how we've become so polarized that we lose sight of how the things we advocate end up hurting us, not even in the long run, in the short term too, like immediately. It's Absolutely. amazing. I agree. Whatever happened to the old Tim Pool? <laughs> Bring that I, back. I'm not liking this new one. I don't not like this good. new one. He's Very melodramatic in both cases. I, I mean, he was the one, he did a debate with Sam, uh, Sam Cedar and compared Sam to Thanos. And I... That was like a funny debate. Like I didn't watch all of it, I'll be honest. But like Sam is like loves that shit. He just loves like, oh, it's time to argue. That one you could tell he was just like, Whew. I <laughs> I couldn't watch the whole thing. Like I as much as I dislike Tim Pool, um, I felt bad for him. Like, yeah, that was it, a tough like, one. it hurt, almost hurt watching one. it, you know? Oh yeah, that hurt. <laughs> but yeah. Let's uh Connor. Uh, do we got a question or two? A couple of uh, let's take two uh, super chat questions before we uh, wrap up. Of course, we will be back next week with another excellent expedition. 
Connor filling in for Kale Brooks. It's my YouTube debut. Welcome, Connor. Champagne Communista asks, are you color coordinating behind the scenes? Um, yes. <laughs> I, at first I had no idea, yeah. but uh, sure, yeah, yeah, that's what's happening. A hundred percent. Can you imagine, Michael, can you no. imagine me calling you like before the show? Hey, Michael, I'm going to wear a, a silky blue dress today. <laughs> I could imagine texting you on Wednesday and being like, all right, I'm thinking of a blue collar shirt. Looks like something that maybe like, you know, an Israeli politician would wear. No, uh, we actually don't. But I like I look, I, I love that's person who thinks that we're taking production extremely seriously, which we are, but not to that level of detail. All right, one more here from Run It Back Politics. Uh, do you have a thought on developing co-ops, cooperatives, and industries? Any thoughts on that? Thoughts, Anna? I think, I mean, there are, it's funny because I was, I've been thinking a lot about co-ops because I think that, um, you know, owning the company you work for, having partial ownership is important. Um, and so... I know that in LA, at least, there are more and more organizations that kind of give you the tools necessary to pursue entrepreneurship in that way. Um, so depending on where you live, definitely check that out and see if, you know, if you have an, an idea and you want it to come to fruition with some of your partners, your friends, um, there are resources, especially in um, some of the bigger cities. And, you know, I think it's... It, I, I like I like how you sometimes uh, talk about tackling things, Michael, where it's hey, focus on your community and what you can do in your community or your workplace in order to uh, gain power and make some changes. Um, so national movements, of course, are incredibly important, but things also need to be a little more localized as well. Yeah, I mean, I think we need to have that real sense of like deep internationalism because we're in a global world. It's globally connected. Most problems are global. Capitalism is certainly global. And then, of course, the things we need nationally, like Medicare for all. But I am really interested in ideas about how people can build like anti-fragility in their local systems, whether it's like food systems, uh, other forms of energy production. Now, that stuff has been presented as like an alternative, like you can escape the macro systems. And I don't think that's true. I just think that they're all a kind of interplay. I think as far as co-ops go, I would definitely look up Richard Wolf. Uh, he writes really well and talks about uh, co-ops on economic update and and, you know, he's Anna's interviewed him on TYT. I've interviewed him on T TMBS. I think actually, though, that like for the future went because I do think you will see a surge of things like co-ops and other forms of like alternative building um, because of, you know, social interests and trends and also because of economic conditions. And then again, uh, the sort of like people working on themselves personally and dealing with the atomizing effects of technology and growing in ourselves is actually going to play a really big part in that because, you know, every group has individual dynamics that come to it and they feed and reinforce each other. And we all need to work on all of these processes simultaneously. So that's, you know, part of the reason why some of my interests are definitely you know, just even in terms of my own processes, hopefully like finally becoming like a semi-adult, you know, at this point 
it is on some of those like psychological and spiritual questions, because I do think that that's another, you know, those things will be major barriers for people being able to actually like do things together without, you know, having all sorts of toxicities and, you know, and, and problems and meltdowns and all the rest. Uh, maybe one more, Connor. Yeah. Just looking here. What do you all think about the push to have sports return at the risk of players' health as more and more of them keep testing positive? I think it's stupid. Yeah, I think it's stupid. And I think uh, I would always, uh, we've talked about this, uh, Waz and I, and, you know, like, workers athletes are workers i mean i don't want to get like too cute like obviously there's major differences i mean if you're especially if you're a star i mean it's actually an int- another kind of interesting dynamic of the reopen is like you know some of these guys on the bench like you know sure they're there's much worse positions to be in life but they're not like rich 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 like i can't work rich you know what i mean but obviously you have some superstars that are worth you know like actual wealth but that being said, I mean, there, this is still in a purely technical sense. It's still labor that's exploited. And I think it shows you the incentive structure. And I miss sports a lot. Um, I think sports are actually probably really healthy for the society in a lot of ways. But I think it's ridiculous. Like, clearly, I mean, we're sh- this stuff is showing up in the summer. All trends would indicate that we're going to get a second wave when it gets colder. I, it's disgusting. It's ridiculous. People got to wait. All right. I think uh, that's it for this week. Anna, thank you so much, as always. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. And thank you, Connor, for for filling in for Kale today. You did great. Killed it, Connor. Connor, of course, the mastermind over at Jacobin Radio, which is another thing you should check out. You should also check out Jacobin Magazine, Catalyst Magazine, which, of course, our great guest today, Vivek Chibber, is an editor on. We have clips on this site. There are teaching series. We mentioned two of them. There's other great ones with... I mean, there was uh, Walter Ben Michaels, Adolph Reed, Bill Fletcher Jr. Uh, there was an Abolish Silicon Valley one, which was excellent. You can really get into it here. So subscribe. And most importantly, if you're able to become a paying subscription member of the magazine, of Jacobin Magazine. And uh, we will see you next week.